morning. Uh, this morning's prelude by the uh, choir back here, <laughs> the praise team, is uh, in the bulletin. Raise hallelujah, and they invite all of us to sing along with them uh, for this prelude. Please stand with us as we worship them.
Good morning. We've got just a few announcements this morning, and then we'll move on to our call to worship. We welcome everyone here this morning and those also listening on the radio this morning and those watching on Facebook Live. The Rose on the Altar this morning is in honor of Jim and Bev Reinecke, who celebrate 59 years of marriage on June 30th. Happy anniversary to Bev. We also offer congratulations to Brad and Casey Phillips on the birth of their son, Colt David, who arrived on Tuesday, June 22nd. Weighing 8 pounds and 20 inches long, Colt is the grandson of Dave and Lynn Horseman and Jeff and Diane Phillips. He was welcomed home by his big sisters, Lila and Lenny. We extend our love and sympathy to the family of Steve Preter. Steve entered Christ's care on Monday, June 22nd. He was 68. Junior and senior high students are invited to Tori and Jake's house for outdoor movie night on Thursday, July 1st at 9 p.m. And the next wonderful Wednesday meal is this Wednesday, June 30th. The menu is in the bulletin. They're still looking for a few volunteers to help serve. And if you know of anyone who needs a meal delivered, please call the office or talk to an elder. And now all those are able, that if you would stand, we'll have the call to worship. Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord's rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Abraham, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. He is our Lord, our God. His judgments are on all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The promise he made for a thousand generations. The covenants he made with Abraham. The oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree. To Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Cana as the portion you will inherit. For he remembered his holy promise to his servant Abraham. He brought out his people with rejoicing, his chosen one with shouts of joy. He gave them the lands of the nations, and they fell heir to what their Lord had. They might keep his precepts and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Now we will continue to stand and sing our praise song, Revelation song.
Now we'd like to invite all the children forward for children's chat. Oh, no, don't take them all. We have pennies down here. Take one. Take one. Take one. Yeah, you got to save some from other people. See, come up here and sit. Good morning. Guys, follow those shiny pennies. Would you like a shiny penny? Sure. Hi. See the pennies? Have you ever seen pennies on the sidewalk? Hmm? You've never seen a penny on the sidewalk? Have you seen dimes or quarters on the sidewalk? Do you pick them up? 
Hmm? Yeah, sure you do. Well, Susie and Sally were with their grandpa, and they were walking to the park. And grandpa stopped all at once. He looked at the pavement, and he picked up a, a penny. Hi, Miles. Come over here. So the girls wondered, why is Grandpa just picking up a penny? It's not worth much. So they asked Grandpa about it. Well, he told them, he says, look at that penny. Can you look at your penny? Huh? What's on there? There's some words and some numbers and stuff like that. It's only worth one cent. And we look at it real close, and Grandpa says at the very top above Lincoln's head, the words say, in God we trust. Did you know the penny said that? Mm -hmm. You did? Great. And the kids are like, well, why is it so important to you, Grandpa? And Grandpa told him. You know, I find that penny, and I read that, and I think it's God's reminder to me that he is always with me. That I need the trust in him. You think that's right? Huh? Yeah, because God is always, always with us. It's easy for us to get caught up what's doing it every day, and we're busy playing outside, or we're busy doing this and that and the other thing. If you're walking down the street, or if you're on vacation, and you see every coin in it has, in God we trust. And that's a really, really good reminder to us to trust in God. So the Bible tells us, be still and know that I am God. So I hope this week that you keep your eyes open when you're playing at the water park and places like that and see if you find any pennies. Okay? And what does it say on the top? In God we trust. And then we know that God is with us all the time. Let's say a prayer. Dear God, Help us always to know that you are our Lord and Savior and to always trust in you. Amen. 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 Thanks, Carolyn. There's some pennies still there on the ground. Make sure you kids pick those up on the way down. Remember what Carolyn was talking about. Awesome. (laughs) He's a little excited about it, it looks like. Wonderful. I support Rustic Hope, which is a ministry based out of Rushi, Ohio. As we collect our offering this morning, uh, the proceeds today will be going to support that ministry, and I encourage you to give in that direction. I um, just want to take a moment and encourage you also just to be in prayer for the names and situations represented in our, in our bulletin and the prayers and concerns list. Always important to be praying, not just for our congregation or community, but with others too. So as we, as we pray together this morning in a few minutes... Um, know that it's important for us to, as God's people, as the body of Christ, to be praying together um, for these things and to be praying for them on our own as well. So this morning our offering is going to support Rustic Hope. Please be in prayer for them and the, and the good work that they do. And uh, at this time, I invite the deacons to come forward to collect the offering.
Amen. Amen. I invite you to remain standing as we sing our next praise song together, Graves into Gardens.
Amen. I invite you to pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace this day. Lord, as, our, as the words to this is my father's wor- world say, this is my father's world, oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be won. Lord, that's what we are praying for this morning. Lord, we're praying because we know that though we have troubles in this world and though things often go awry or don't go according to what we think is right, we know that you are still the ruler, that you are still in charge, that there is nothing in this world that can, that can separate us from your love, that, can, that will dethrone you, Lord, because you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we thank you that that you are, Lord Jesus, you are the one who died for us and, and was raised to life, and that you will come again. And when you come again, earth and heaven will be one, that you will make all things right, that, that your will will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And so we look forward to that day when, when all of the wrongs in this world will be made right, all of the, the sadness and grief and mourning and pain will be undone because you will have renewed all things. And so, Lord, it's with that hope and that confidence that we know we can come to you in prayer because we know that you are the ruler yet. We know that that you will come again and you will set things right. And so we trust in this moment when things aren't going the way that we expect or they aren't easy. We know that you are with us, that you are working all things according to the good of those who love you, who have been called according to your purpose. And so we can have confidence, even in the midst of our hard times, to know that you are still sovereign and you are still good. And so with that in mind, we lift up our our church family, our community, our nation, and our world, Lord, all those who are in need. And we pray that they would look to you for their provision, their comfort, their strength, and their healing. We pray for this wonderful Wednesday meal coming up this week. We thank you for the opportunity to once again gather as a community to share a meal we pray, Lord, that, that it would not only bless those who are part of our church family, but also, Lord, we pray that you would bring people from outside our church family, from our community and the surrounding communities, to come and enjoy this meal, that it would be a blessing to them and an opportunity for us to, to, in a very practical way, share the love of Christ with those uh, that are around us. We also lift up Rustic Hope. We thank you for their ministry and pray that you would uh, bless them and that the offering that we collected today, Lord, would go to further the good work that they are doing. And Lord, we pray all these things according to your will, um, trusting that it is what is best for us. And so we pray, Jesus, as you taught your disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Revelations, chapter chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the se- and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not given grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. We have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you repent, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But if you have this in your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of the life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sherwin. Appreciate you being up here reading scripture. It's not often that I get another pastor to read scripture for me to start the sermon here. So thanks for being here and reading our scripture for us today. As you can tell from, actually, why don't, we, why don't we begin with another word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can gather together as your people and read your word. Uh, thank you for your word, which is, uh, which is truth, which, which helps us to, to know you better, Lord, um, and helps, you to, helps us to live for you better in this world. As we study the book of Revelation today and the weeks to come, I pray that you would guide our hearts and minds to the truth of your word. And I pray that we would, um, that your spirit would work in us what is pleasing and good according to your will. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. My kids love to get mail. It's one of their favorite things. They like to check the mailbox. Uh, it's, and, and for a while there, it was kind of funny because Miles wasn't even tall enough to even open the mailbox, but he still insisted on opening the mailbox. It's a little bit of a struggle between him and Josephine, but they love to check the mail, and they especially love it when they get mail. Uh, my, my parents, who are still living in New York, um, know this, of course, and so about once a month or maybe a little bit more often, they'll send my kids a card in the mail, and of course, each of them gets their own card. There's one for Josephine, one for Miles, and there are usually just little notes with some stickers in there, maybe some coins and uh, a dollar bill or something, um, but they love it. When, they're, when they see that letter addressed to them, their eyes just light up, they love to open it. Usually they go right for the stickers and the money, right? They throw the card aside a little bit. They know what's inside there, but they just love to receive mail and mail addressed specifically to them. Um, Much of the New Testament that we have before us are letters written to people. We don't necessarily think about them that way all the time. Set aside the Gospels and Acts, just about every other writing in the New Testament was a letter written to an individual or to a group of individuals that we call churches. Believers in Christ, encouraging them, exhorting them, challenging them to live for Christ better each and every day. And in the book of Revelation, we have a, in these chapters that we're going to be studying, chapters 2 and 3, we have seven letters written to seven churches. 
And the amazing thing about these letters is they weren't written by Paul or James or Peter, although that would be pretty amazing in and of themselves, having letters from the apostles encouraging them. These letters, as we see from this passage today, were letters written by Christ himself through the prophet John. These words were spoken by Christ to these churches. And it's amazing. It's, it's, a really, it's really kind of a cool little glimpse into what God had to say through Christ, through the prophet John, to these specific churches during that time period. Now, before we dig into what Jesus had to say to the church in Ephesus, I think it would be interesting for us to reflect a moment on what would Jesus say to us at First Church. Have you ever thought about that before? What would Jesus say to us about how we are doing and who we are in Christ and, and the kinds of things that we're doing here? As we'll see in the coming weeks, Jesus usually had a mix of some good things to say about the churches, the things that he was, he was commending them for, but he also had some harsh words to say, right, about things in areas where they were falling short. And if, they're on, if we're honest with ourselves, right, we would, we would realize that, that Jesus would probably have a mix of things to say to us too. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way as if we aren't doing anything good here, but just in a realistic way. Right? No church is perfect. And we see here in the New Testament and Revelations 2 and 3, even the early church had its problems. Even the churches who were just a generation or two removed from Christ walking on the earth and Jesus dying on the cross for us, they had their own problems as well. So it's not just about getting back to a different time period, getting back to a day and age when, when things were perfect before we messed it up. The reality is that churches from the beginning of, of the church have had problems, have had challenges, have had areas where they've needed correction and encouragement. And we, of course, are no different. And the reason for that is because the church is the people, right? When we, I, I know sometimes when we think of church, we think of the building that we're meeting in, right? We say we're going to church as if we are going to a building or we're going to observe a program or a show, but when the New Testament talks about the church, it's not talking about, about a building or an institution. It's talking about the people, the people that are gathered together as the body of Christ. In fact, that's the word that the New Testament uses when it talks about the church, is ecclesia, which means those that are called out, those that are assembled. Right? It's, it's referring to the people themselves. And so as we... As we study these letters to the seven churches in the coming weeks, it's important to remember that Jesus was writing to specific people in specific places in their own specific circumstances, but through them, he's also writing to us. Just as we can learn from the, church to the, the letter to the church in Corinth or the letter to the church in Philippi, we too can learn from these letters about what it means for us to be the church and how we can be the body of Christ in New Knoxville and our surrounding communities. So over the next seven or so weeks, we're going to be looking at these letters to the seven churches. And you'll notice that there's a lot of similarities here uh, in, in them in the coming weeks. And I want to take a moment just to address them here as we start the series together. There's a common structure that's taking place here. And, and just real quick, if you want to look over Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, you'll see that playing out here in this first letter. We see that this letter is addressed to the angel of the church in this particular city. And the letter itself is written from Jesus. Each one of these letters has a very unique description of, of who Jesus is. And they, the symbolism there uh, points 
to the character of Jesus and what he's done for us. And the symbolism, in fact, is pretty common throughout the book of Revelation. For those of you who have studied it before, read through it before, you know Revelation is full of very vivid imagery, very, very vivid descriptions of Jesus of, and of what God's doing in the world and what he will do in the world. And it can be very maybe difficult to understand at times, and, and I totally understand that, which is why I'm preaching from Revelation 2 and 3, because they're the most straightforward aspects of the book of Revelation. I'll leave the rest for you to tackle on your own. But we'll see even here there's some, there's some pretty vivid imagery and, and that's used to describe Jesus, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. And then the bulk of the letter, the bulk of the verses are dedicated to the message that Jesus has for these churches. And as I mentioned already, they're usually a mix of both good and bad, although there are exceptions we'll see in the coming weeks. And then in the close of each letter, he, he is a bit of encouragement and it's a bit of a promise to the one who overcomes. That those who hear what the Spirit says to the churches and those who, who, who follow through with Jesus' encouragement and correction will be blessed in what they do. And the common theme that runs throughout all of these letters from the one we're looking at today all the way through to the church in Laodicea, the common theme is that the greatest need that the local church has isn't a new building, isn't a large budget, right? isn't uh, any particular aspect of ministry in a, in a practical sense. The greatest need the local church has is to be faithful to Jesus. Right? That's the most important thing for churches to do. That's the number one priority for us as individuals and as a group of believers that we call the church is to be faithful to Jesus in everything and in every way. So that means holding fast to the areas that, that are, we are doing well in, but also repenting in the areas that we are not. And we'll see that's a common theme coming up over and over and over again. Repenting and turning away from what is bad and turning towards Christ. And through these seven letters, Jesus is ultimately speaking to all churches. He's addressing, you know, these, these seven churches were real communities with real people in Asia Minor. And we don't want to forget that, just like the other letters in the New Testament were written to real churches and real places as well. But through these letters, through what Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus, Jesus is also speaking to the church universal. He's speaking to us 2,000 years later. In all places and at all times. We can learn how to be faithful to Jesus from their example, learning from the things that they're doing well, but also learning from the areas that Jesus is trying to correct. I know I've said this quote many times before, but it it bears repeating. Mark Twain once said that we need to learn from other people's mistakes because we don't live long enough to make them all ourselves. Right? The same is true when it comes to churches, right? We need to learn from their example, both good and bad so that we can be the church that God is calling us to be. And so let's dig into God's Word together. We're looking, like I said, at Revelation 2, 1 through 7. We're going to have um, an opportunity to dig into that a little bit more here together. And so let's start with the opening verses, this way that Jesus is described in this letter. He is the one who is standing among the seven lampstands and holding the seven stars in his right hand. 
And this, again, may seem a little kind of out there, like sometimes Revelation can be, but in this particular instance, we are told what these symbols represent. And if we rewind just a few verses to the end of chapter 1, we are told that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount told us that that we are to be the light of the world, right? And we are to let our light shine. We're not supposed to hide it under a bushel. We're not supposed to, to cover it up, but we're supposed to allow our light to shine so that people may see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. This idea of lamps to be the light of the world, called to allow God's light to shine in them and through them to the glory of God. And the stars, it says, are the angels of the churches. Now, this is a little bit more vague, the word angel, you know, could mean a literal angel, right? Angels are described at different points in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation. But it could also be a symbol for, for church leadership, pastors, elders, other sorts of spiritual leadership within the local church. And when it says that Jesus is holding them in his right hand, it's talking about the authority that Jesus has as the head of the church. That all church leadership, whether... whether uh, um, Human leadership in the church, but spiritual leadership as well, is ultimately under the authority of Christ as the head of the church. And as Jesus is walking among the lampstands, it's a reminder that Jesus is present among his churches, that he is here with us and he holds all the authority. We here at First Church are a congregational church, and I don't know if you've ever really, you know, given that a whole lot of thought about what that means. I'll tell you one thing it doesn't mean. As a congregational church, it doesn't mean that the that we are a pure democracy, that just the, the majority opinion rules, that whatever people think is the, is the way to go is, the, is, is what we should do as a church. Now, now, don't get me wrong. We all have a part to play in, in, in leading and in, in guiding this church along, right? We have a responsibility as members to this church. But a congregational church isn't a democracy in the sense that popular vote wins, we are a, a democracy in the sense that we together as God's people are seeking out God's will for this church. That, that Jesus is the head of the church, not me, right? Jesus is the head of the church, not the elders or consistory. He's the one that we follow and he's the one that we serve. And our role as a congregational church is to seek his will together, discern his will together, and do our best to together follow him in everything that we do. And so that's why it is important that we all participate, we all are involved, because it's a group effort to seek God's will as the body of Christ and to discern what we feel is where God is leading us as a church. But ultimately, as we see here in Revelation and throughout Scripture, we see that Jesus is the head of the church. And what the church, what makes a church a church, if I can use that term, what makes a church a church is God's presence among his people, right? God's authority being exercised through Christ as the head of the church. That's what marks a true church. But the implication here, as we'll see at the end of the letter, is that, that God's presence and God's authority are not guaranteed for us. That if we reject him, that if we go our own way, that if we don't repent in the areas that God is, is calling us to repent in, if we go on our own way, it says that God will remove his presence from among his people. In the Old Testament, after God rescued his people out of Egypt, 
and, and they went to Mount Sinai to receive the laws. Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights receiving the law from God. God's people were down there creating a golden calf, worshiping an idol, right? They had just been miraculously rescued and brought out of Egypt. God had just delivered them in an amazing way. And within days and weeks, they were off doing their own thing. And God says, all right, I'll just, Moses, you stay here. I'm going to go get rid of them, and I'm going to just start over with you. And, 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 and this is a common theme, God's people rejecting and turning away from him, even after God has been faithful and provided over and over again. And Moses pleads with God. He says, don't go. Don't go from us. Because if you're not with us, then it makes no difference. Right? Moses knew, and he, he understood that what makes God's people God's people is God's presence there among them. And so as, as a church, right, Jesus is the one who, who leads us and he is the one who is walking among the seven golden lampstands and it is his authority that we submit to because that's what makes the difference. But what's the, what is Jesus then addressing here in the church? What's the problem that's going on in the church in Ephesus? Well, there's two things that he says here are, are the issue. And they both come across as, as somewhat positive statements, but we'll see here what is missing the first thing, the first problem they're having is they have the right theology, but the wrong attitude towards others, right? Jesus commends them here for, for believing the truth, right? They, they are able to identify false prophets, this, these Nicolaitans and, and, and what they were teaching. They were, in a sense, kind of infiltrating the church and influencing the church. And Jesus commends the Ephesians for identifying them as false prophets and as false teachers and pushing back against them. In fact, Paul, this is the exact thing that Paul warned the Ephesian church about in Acts 20. As, as Paul was departing Ephesus for the last time and heading to Jerusalem where he knew he'd be arrested, he addresses the elders of the Ephesian church and he says, look, there's going to be false teachers that come among you. They're going to be like wolves that are going to try to infiltrate the flock. And you need to be on your guard and you need to watch over the flock to protect them. You see those words in Acts chapter 20. And obviously that came true because here we see years later through the through the prophet john jesus is commending the ephesian church for holding on to right belief holding on to right theology but something's missing isn't it they have the right theology yet they have the wrong attitude towards others another example of this in the new testament are the pharisees right in many ways pharisees were spiritual superheroes of the day they knew scripture inside and out, and they structured their lives around following the rules to the T. In fact, they created extra rules in order to follow those rules even better. That's how Pharisees were defined, and everybody looked up to them. Yet in Matthew 23, we see that Jesus has some pretty strong words to say against the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, and nor are you willing to let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Ouch. Right? Those, are, those are some strong words, aren't they? Jesus is calling out the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of the day, because they, they had all the right answers, yet they had the wrong attitude toward others. The other problem that the Ephesian church was, uh, oh, excuse me, that there, there's a, there was a disconnect between the head and the heart. 
right? It's, it's possible for us to know something in an informational sense, right, in an intellectual sense, yet not know it truly in our heart. And that's what's going on here. They had all the right answers, but they weren't living them out. They weren't allowing those right answers to truly sink in and change the way that they lived and the way that they acted toward others. So there was one problem, right theology but wrong attitude. The other problem they had was that they, were, they had the right works but the wrong motivation. The right works but the wrong motivation. Right? And there's probably no better example of this than what Pastor Tori talked about last week when I was gone. Right? These, in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus warns about people who will one day say, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we do all these amazing things in your name? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we heal people? And Jesus will say, away from me for I don't, away from me for I don't know you. Right? That's a scary passage. And Pastor Tori did a wonderful job addressing that last week. Right? We can do the right things, but for the wrong reasons. And again, I, I hate to pick on the Pharisees again, but they're, uh, they're a good example of this. In Matthew 6, they're described as people who pray on the street corners in order to be heard by everyone. Right? I spend a lot of time every week here praying and encouraging you to pray and talking about the importance of prayer. But we can certainly pray for the wrong reasons, can't we? We can pray in order to try to look good and, and seem holy, right? And when we do that, we're doing a good thing, but for the wrong reasons. And again, that's what's happening here in the church in Ephesus. They were doing the right things. They were persevering. They were working hard. They were toiling for the Lord. But yet there was still something missing. And that's the core issue here. They're missing the love that they had at first. This love here is, is love for God that manifests itself in love for others. The Greek word here, and, and, and I know you've heard pastors talk about this before. I've probably talked about it before, but there's different Greek words for the word love. And this word here is the word agape, which is the word that is used to describe God's love for us. It is, it is, it is unconditional. It is self-sacrificing love. That's the kind of love that we're called to have. And the love that we're called to have for God and for others. Love for God and love for other people are inextricably linked. They go hand in hand. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. For all the law and all the prophets hang on those two commands. When Jesus summed up everything for us, he summed it up as love God and love others. You can't have one without the other. If you love God, then you're going to love others too. But if you don't love others, you have to ask yourself if you truly love God as we're called to love him. 1 John 4, 19 through 21 says, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Right? Good works and good theology are nothing without love for God and love for other people. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul addresses this issue. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am nothing. I am only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith that can move mountains, but don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but have not love, I am nothing. See, this is what Jesus is trying to get across to the Ephesian church and to us. That we can do all the right things, we can have all the right beliefs, we can have 
all of those things in place, but if we're missing love for God and love for others, we're still falling short. So how do we, how do we get back to that? How do we cultivate more love for God, which will then manifest itself in love for others? Well, he says there's two things we need to do. We need to remember and we need to repent. He says, consider how far you've fallen, right? It's an invitation for us to reflect on God's faithfulness in the past, right? An invitation to remember all that he's done for us. So much of the Old Testament, the Psalms and and books like Deuteronomy are, are opportunities and invitations for us to reflect on God's goodness and all that he's done for his people. Because we know that if God is faithful in the past, he will continue to be faithful in the future. And this isn't about chasing a feeling, Right? Sometimes when we think about the love we had at first, we think of like that honeymoon feeling, whether that's human relationships or when we first have come to know Christ. There's like this, this high, right, of, of this emotional high of, uh, of the, the, the start of that relationship. But what he's saying here is just remember the love you've had at first. Consider it. He's not talking about chasing a feeling. We all know that chasing feelings don't lead anywhere good. He's inviting us to chase after Jesus, to seek after him. Feelings can come and go, but he is consistent. And so part of remembering is being intentional, right? We need to find ways to remind ourselves of God's goodness and all that he's done for us. We need to meditate on the gospel and the truth of God's word. Don't wait for the feeling to come back because feelings, I said, are fickle. But actions can often produce the feelings Later, So, so if, even if we're not feeling it, we seek hard after God, we spend time in his word, we pray, we gather with other believers, and more often than not, the feelings that we maybe are looking for will follow suit. But even if they don't, we can still ground ourselves in the truth of God's word because they are true no matter how we feel. And really a sign of spiritual maturity is choosing to love God and love others even when it's difficult. And one of the ways that we can remember is what we're doing here this morning, whether you're here in person, listening on the radio, watching on Facebook, and that is worshiping God with other people. There's a community aspect to remembering that when we sing God's praises together, when we hear God's word together, we are encouraging one another in that faith. And there's things that that we gain as believers from being in fellowship with other people, with other believers, that we just can't get on our own. That's why gathering together for worship whether in person, on Facebook, what's on the radio, worshiping with other people is so important. And the last thing then, and this is the theme that's going to run throughout these letters, is the call to repent, to turn away from sin and turn towards Jesus. Part of considering how far we've fallen is examining the reasons why we have fallen, recognizing the sin in our lives and confessing it, recognizing our apathy or our misplaced priorities or our distractions and trying to turn away from those things and turn towards Christ. Remember, repentance is not a one-time decision only. It's an attitude of the heart. It's an ongoing way of life. Let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, he says he will give eternal life. So part of repentance, like I said, when we think about repentance, it's about, it's about turning away from one thing. It's about turning away from our sin, but it's also about turning towards Christ. Right? It does no good to turn away from sin if we don't have a new direction to go in, because then we'll just remain lost. We'll continue to wander. 
But if we turn towards something, if we have a new bearing to focus in on, which is Christ, then it'll lead us, it'll point us in the right direction. So it's not just about turning away from what is bad, but it's about focusing on what is good, remembering all that he's done for us and all he's calling us to be and to do. And part of repentance, right, is, is right, it's a change of heart, it's a change of attitude, but it's also a change of action. And so if we truly want to love God in, in every way that we can, it includes, it has to include our ability to love others, even when it's not easy. Think of all Jesus said on this, on this topic, the golden rule, do unto others as you, would, as you would have them do unto you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This agape love that is talked about here is radical, selfless, sacrificial love. That is the identifying characteristic of God's people, of his church, of any body of believers. John 13, on the night of the Last Supper, the night before Jesus gave his life for us, he told his disciples this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, it's not everyone will know you by your correct doctrine. He doesn't say everyone will know you by your good behavior. No, he says everyone will know you if you love one another. That is the defining characteristic of God's people. That's what the Ephesian church is missing. And we have to ask ourselves, in what ways are we missing that in our own lives and as a church? Because if we love God and love others as we're called to do, then we will be a church that glorifies God and his light will shine through us for a world that desperately needs to see it. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us, you have written to us, Lord, so that we may know you and follow you. Lord, help us to regain that love that we've had at first. Help us to never lose sight, lose sight in everything we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we close our service today. Let's sing our closing hymn, number 364, My Jesus, I Love Thee.
Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. You may go in peace. And you're coming, and you're going, 